just experienced was a testimony. And that's a pretty powerful experience. When you start taking something and you listen to somebody who shares a very real experience, this is what happened to me, nobody can take that away from you. You can try to explain it away. You can say, well, it was your parents that were so nice and kind. Or maybe you could say, um, I, you know, it had nothing to do with your gift. It was just the way things are, and it would have happened anyway. But not when you're sitting there praying, and you're asking God to do something, and God, the way that your whole outlook on life is. Nobody can take that away. That's your experience. It's how you have experienced God, and how God has altered and changed both your thinking and your heart and your activities that come out of that change. The testimony is critical. The testimony is something that is very personal to you. It's not something that somebody else made up. It's your experience that you have with Jesus. And you can sit there with an atheist and they can sit there and, and argue with you. And you can say, well, you can think what you want to, but this is my experience. And that becomes something real. It becomes powerful. And it's quite important. Now, when we get to our text this morning, this is going to be the next major testimony that Paul has in Acts 22. The one that we saw before when he was on Mars Hill in Athens, remember how he used something from the history of the Athenians in order to introduce the subject of the unknown God? And then he started to... Uh, to uh, explain about the resurrection from the dead by starting with creation. And he explains it all in a completely different setting in Athens as to what he's going to do now in Jerusalem. I think just keep that thought in mind that when he's dealing with people in a particular situation, he's calling upon not only their language that they speak, their heart language, he's also discussing with them in a way that they can understand within their culture how God moves within every culture. And that's a beautiful thing, whether it's, whether it's another language that you speak. The first time I ever preached in German and somebody wanted to get saved, I went back and cried at my bed saying I didn't even know if they understood what I was saying. But God was greater than all of that and used my broken German to actually touch people's hearts. You see, when it comes to dealing with, with a testimony, it becomes powerful and even more powerful when, it's, when we understand the context in which it's being spoken and shared. Nobody knows this situation here in this part of West Pender County than the people who live here. And believe me, it's a whole lot different from being in the industrial center of West Germany. <laughs> so let's take a look at Acts chapter 22. Now, recall, please, that last week that in the process that he was, he was attacked, here's Paul, he was being attacked. They said, this guy has, has uh, taken... Um, Greeks with him into the temple. He's defiled the temple. 
and they drag him out. They close the temple gates. They start to beat up on him. They're out there to kill him. The, the riot has happened, and the people are coming, and suddenly the uh, commander of the Roman soldiers comes down, and, and they stop them. They, they gather around Paul. They say, what's going on? And people are shouting this and that, and then they, they pick him up, and they have to carry him away from the crowd because, the, I mean, the guy has just been beaten up. You've you got to have this picture. They've been beating him up. They've been beating him with sticks, with their fists. They've been kicking him. Who knows, maybe they had some stones. I mean, this is, they were intent on killing him, right? So here is Paul in that state being carried by soldiers up the stairs, and Paul stops the uh, commander and says, in Greek to him, is it all right if I address the people? <laughs> and, and for some strange reason, he stops and he says, so you're not the Egyptian who was with the assassins. <laughs> so he's already been, it was a mistake. It was a mistake that he was accused of having taken Trophimus into the temple. And now he was also it was a mistake that they thought that he was an Egyptian assassin. <laughs> so now the poor commander's sitting there wondering, what is all this that's going on? And so he lets Paul give an account. And when Paul, who's now in chains, he's in chains, he's been beaten up, and he's standing there and he raises his hands to quieten the people down, and he turns and addresses them at the end of chapter 21, he addresses them in Aramaic, and suddenly they become quiet. Now he's talking to them in their heart language. And here it's called a Hebrew dialect, but they understand what he's doing. And this is what he says. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. And I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify from then, from them, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. And it came about that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And those who are with me beheld the light to be sure but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. 
But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And it came about when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in thee. And when the blood of thy witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the cloaks of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And they listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust in the air, the commander ordered them to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging and that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. And when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he answered, Yes. And the commander said, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let him go. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. Lord, bless the reading of your word. Well, this is Paul's story that we're beginning to look at. And the amazing thing is that as we look at it, his testimony is something that Jesus told him he had to tell as part of what he was going to be doing. And this is just the first of three times that we're going to be reading towards the end of this book in Acts about the power of his testimony. The interesting thing to begin with is that he is going to adapt his testimony to the people and culture that he's in. And I find this absolutely fascinating to me that he knows who his audience is and he's going to address his audience in a way that they're going to understand. Not just in the language, but also in terms of their culture. He's mightily aware of all of that. So when you're preparing your testimony, 
think about who your audience is that you're sharing your testimony with. And this, if you compare this chapter that I've just read, chapter 22, with Acts chapter 9, which is what, hap what Luke tells about the story of Paul and his conversion, you'll see that there are things that Luke left out and that Paul uh, brings to light in this passage. So in each case, they're looking at, Paul, uh, Luke is writing for Theophilus and wants him to know certain things, and, and he leaves certain things out, Paul does, that happened in uh, Luke 9, and he adds things that aren't present in Luke chapter 9. When you get ready to prepare your testimony, think about the people and what is really critical and important that you need to share when you're sharing your story. You don't need to share about when you changed the light bulb, maybe, <laughs> but maybe you do need to share about what Jesus means to you and why, what happened when you met with Jesus. Now, let's look at the first thing here. What did Paul not do? This is, I, I was going through this, and I, I, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I'm looking at what did he say and what does it mean and how does it communicate. And then all of a sudden I thought, you know, if, if the police suddenly raided your house and arrested you, what would be the first thing that you would do? Hello, anybody there? <laughs> Call your lawyer. Did you notice that Paul did not demand a lawyer? <laughs> He's not calling on his lawyer. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even accuse his tormentors. He doesn't say, what a load of rubbish. And, and, and he, he doesn't go back and say, you've got it all wrong. He doesn't do any of those things. Isn't that crazy? I'm sitting there thinking, wait a minute. This guy is in pain. He's, in, he's hurting because he's just been beaten up and kicked. And, and, and who knows what all has happened to him. He's just been stretched out with, with thongs. They've just released him. He's been in chains. He's been carried by soldiers. And he, he's not upset. He's not angry. I, I'm sitting there going, this is funny. And he gets up and he calms the people down. And now he wants to talk to them, the very people who have done this to him. I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. Look at the things that he doesn't do. He doesn't lose his peace. In the midst of the struggle and the torment that he's in right now, he's right, as Jan mentioned earlier, in the middle, in the eye of the storm. And he's got complete peace. And what he's going to do now is he's going to tell them about his encounter with Jesus and how his life has been transformed. And there's a lot that we can learn from this very experience that is critical for the time in which we live right now. Okay, so here it is. This is what he did do. The first thing is he established his credibility. The first thing that he does is he gets up and he says, I want you to know that what I'm about to say is trustworthy and it's credible. You can believe it. And the reason why you can believe what I'm going to tell you is this. I was born a Jew. That means his mother was a Jew. In this case, his father was a Jew. 
He knows the importance of the city of Jerusalem because he was raised in Jerusalem. And then he goes back and he says, this is my education. I was educated under the foremost of all the rabbis in this city, Gamaliel. I am his student. I understand the law. I understand the prophets. I know about the law and the prophets. And I have learned it by heart. I know what it's about. Wow. Not only does he know what it's about, but he's also aware of the value and the importance of the temple. Now, isn't it amazing that Jesus says similar things? He says, I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Not that he's, he's negating the law and the prophets. He says, I, I know all about them. <laughs> of course he was there. I mean, of course he knows all about them. He knows about his father, and he knows what the right interpretation is of the law and the prophets. And so when Jesus comes along, he's got the same kind of credibility. Next thing is, he talks about his zeal for the law and for the temple and his piety. So I want you to understand something. I, I, I know that the temple is the house of prayer. Isn't that what Jesus said? When he cast out the money changers from the temple, that my house shall be called a house of prayer. And he knows that when you go into the house, you go in to pray. He's exclaiming his piety and his sincerity. Now, when it comes to the law, this is important. When it comes to the law, it's not that he negates the law or that he violates the law. That's not what the law is about. The law tells you that you don't keep it. That's what the law does. The law says, thou shalt not lie, steal, commit adultery. What do we do? We lie, steal, cheat, and commit adultery. And suddenly we take a look at the law and we go, oh my goodness, I can't keep the law because that's what it does is it points the finger and says, you can't keep it. When you encounter Jesus, does the law go away? No, God changes you on the inside so that keeping the law is the most natural thing to you as it is natural to God who established the law to show you who he is. God doesn't lie, steal, cheat, or commit adultery. So you, if I look at God and I see that's who he is, then when I come to Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit transforms me so that I become one who is changed on the inside. And the law is now written on my heart and not in books and stones and everything else. The law is in my heart. And I know that if I break the law, I am not only hurting myself, I'm hurting my wife, I'm hurting my family, I'm hurting my kids, I'm hurting my friends. See, the, the issue is that when I see that, I have a fear of God and say, I don't want to lie, steal, cheat, and commit adultery because it's going to be destructive to everything that God has ever accomplished in my life. You look at all these TV evangelists who have a fall, <laughs> Praise God, they can be redeemed, they can be forgiven, they can be saved, but their entire ministry goes down the drain. 
the people who have a negative effect as a result of it. You see, the law, it doesn't mean that the law has been removed. It's that the law is written on our hearts and that the power of God is present to allow us, to work with us, to transform us, to cause us to grow from one level of faith to the next level of faith into the glory of Jesus. And that's an incredible thing. But that's important. So he's not against zeal for the law, nor is he against the temple, nor is he against prayer life. (laughs) So all the accusations about he has defiled the temple with one clear statement, this is who I am, this is my background, I was zealous like you to get rid of the people of the way. I persecuted them to death. I got letters from the people. They can even tell you that I got letters from them to go to Damascus and arrest the people there and bring them back to Jerusalem. I want you to know that's where it is. So he has laid the groundwork that he is a Pharisee of Pharisees from the tribe of Benjamin, and he has studied under the best guys He knows the law. He's a man of prayer. He's a man zealous for God, just as they are. But his understanding now, what he does do differently is that he has begun to understand the law from an entirely different perspective. And it starts, and this is where it starts to get really fascinating. He says, I was on my way, and I saw a great light. That's number one. What is light, especially light that shines brightly so that there's no shadow in it? What does that speak of? It speaks of the glory of God. The encounter that Paul has on the road to Damascus is that everybody who's listening to him goes, wait a minute, God Almighty showed up and suddenly illuminated everything, and the people who were with him both saw it, heard the voice, even though they couldn't understand it. And this is one of the most amazing things. Look, this is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Well, let's, let's go back here. So in his conversion, he starts by talking about light, and he's going to bring it up again. And so now, in the process of this light that he has just encountered, he goes on, and, and uh, he doesn't talk a whole lot about uh, who Ananias is and all that Ananias told him about being one that's going to share the gospel with kings and rulers. and He doesn't even mention any of that. He just mentions that he's got to get up and get baptized for the remission of sins. In in Acts 9, he says you've got to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, in the process here of first, of setting the the, the foundation and saying, I am a credible witness of who Jesus is, and a witness of the resurrection. Now, up to this point, 
it's absolutely brilliant because as a Pharisee as he was, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, whereas the Sadducees didn't. That's why they were sad, you see. Sorry, that was a bad joke. <laughs> One of those bad jokes in the middle of a sermon. I, I shouldn't do that at all. Who knows who's listening on Facebook, but anyway, forgive me. I, I, I shouldn't have said that. But, <laughs> but in, the, in the process here, we have the light that has shone, and now he's blinded by the light, and when Ananias comes, he suddenly looks up, and he can see. But what he sees is he sees everything different. He is suddenly inundated with all of this Old Testament stuff that points to Jesus. And he goes, I thought I was being zealous for the law by persecuting the Christians, but the truth is they were called the way back then, persecuting the way. But you see, the real event here is that my whole perception of who Jesus is is now interpreted differently when I look at the Old Testament. That, now, this is important. i gotta, I got to share this. There are people here who call themselves progressive Christians, are progressive evangelicals, and they're inundated throughout the Western world today. And they take a look and they say, well, Paul took a look at the Old Testament and he changed it by starting to look at it from a Christian perspective. And all we're doing is going back and looking at Paul and looking at the Old Testament, and we're changing it to adapt to the way that we're living today. And they're using that as an excuse to do away with the law, which God doesn't do. God does not change. doesn't change his mind, doesn't change the way he acts, he doesn't change what he has already established as truth. But how we perceive that in terms of interpreting the Old Testament in light of the Messiah coming, that doesn't change. What changes is us. And if I have a Christianity that says I've got a good feeling and God forgives me and accepts me just the way I am and I don't need to change, you haven't encountered Jesus. You've had a euphoric experience, and I am all for euphoric experiences. I really am. And real euphoric experiences that are full of Jesus bring about change in your lifestyle. And so what he's doing here is he says the knowledge of the glory has now come upon him. And then he comes to the temple. Now, I love this. He comes to Jerusalem and he goes into the temple, the house of prayer. You know, Jesus never avoided the temple, did he? He just said, you know, tear down this temple. In three days I'm going to build it again. His whole perception of the temple is no longer going to be a building made out of stone. It's going to be a building made out of human beings. And we become the temple of God. Those who are indwelt by his spirit. Still the place of prayer. Still the place where we gather. Now. In the temple. When he comes into the temple. 
He said, when I was in Jerusalem and praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. Does anybody remember somebody in the Old Testament who had a similar experience? Here we go. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. It was in the year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah was in the temple and God showed up. And look at what God says to him. I've often preached on this for a missions conference and I, and I stop after Here I am, send me. But he says, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not understand. Keep on looking, but do not gain knowledge. Make the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes blind, so that they will not see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Oops. Anybody that's sitting there saying, Paul was in the temple and he fell into a trance, and suddenly sees Jesus again. He has just identified himself as being a prophet, not only a prophet of, the, of what Jesus was like, but also of the great Isaiah. And now, being with the great Isaiah, look what it says. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says, is it too small a thing that I should that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nation so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's Isaiah in the Old Testament. And here are all these people wanting to persecute the, the way, the Christians, because they are actually doing this, reaching the Gentiles, and going to the ends of the earth. Oh my goodness. Now Paul has just established both his credibility and his Old Testament foundation for what he's going to say next. Because now he's had a vision of Jesus in the same way that Isaiah had. He knows what Isaiah has said, that these people aren't going to understand it. He's understood that already because they've already accused him of stuff he hasn't done. And now... Here he is. And he's going to say this. The Lord says, make haste, get up, and leave Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. In case you missed out on it, when Jesus was in Nazareth, he picked up the scroll, turned to Isaiah, and he said, this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. And when the people heard him share about how Gentiles were touched, like, like Naaman, the leper, he said, how many lepers were lived at the time of Elijah in, in Israel, and yet only a foreigner was healed. And when the people heard that, they rose up and wanted to kill Jesus. They were all filled with rage and wanted to throw him off a cliff. I mean, the parallels here are just too many to look at. You see, he understood his prophetic calling and was 
clarity of mind, without meanness of spirit, but in love and compassion for the people that he wants to be saved. The very people who have just beaten him up, he's turning to them and appealing to them, saying, this is a credible testimony. I was like you, but I met Jesus and my life was changed. And in that simple message, he's turning to them with things that they understand within their understanding of their piety and their knowledge of the scriptures. And he's raising himself up to the level of a prophet without saying that. But he's saying this is something you need to pay attention to. And he also understood the mission in his life. And he's not backing down from any of this. He's not backing down. I mean, he's not trying to make his testimony sound a little bit better for them so that they don't get terribly angry with him. No, he, he, he's laid the foundation. He says, this is what Isaiah said. This is what Jesus said. This is what I'm saying. And this is what Jesus said to me. He said, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And in that moment, they start crying out away with this guy. Because they don't want to have that kind of a challenge to their personal understanding of what law and piety really is. The reaction to Paul is, of course, that he's going to have to do something now. And while he's being laid out, he could either say, well, I'll just suffer and die now and go home and be with Jesus. Or he can say, God wants me to go to Rome. I've already written to them a letter and I need to go to Rome. And he knows how to get there. So he just says to him, are you going to whip me here for a confession? When I haven't even had a trial yet. I'm a Roman citizen you don't have the right to do this. And it could cost you your life. You do know that. You do understand what the issue is. Remember what happened at Philippi when they beat him up and put him in jail and then they found out that he was a Roman citizen. They came down and begged him to leave the city before anything evil could happen to the, the magistrates. And Paul comes and he says, well, I'm just going to enter into the Roman judicial system because this will eventually get me to Rome. And I may not get there the way that I wanted to, but this is the way it's going to happen. And I'm going to share the gospel with Caesar. So he starts off by saying, I'm a Roman citizen. Be careful what you do with me. And at that point, he's released, and they bring him in then to find out why the people are so mad and upset. What is our response to this incredible method of sharing the story. Our response here is that we need to be committed to the task that Jesus has given us. The task that Jesus has given us is to share the gospel, the good news, with those that we meet. However we do that, whether you say, God bless you, whether you say, have you ever met with Jesus? Or is it all right if I pray with you? Have you got a need in your life that I can pray with you about? Just showing kindness, being loving and gracious, touching people's lives that are in need. 
when somebody says, I got a pain, you just stop and put your hand on the pain and pray. Say, Lord Jesus, touch my friend here. In the process, we start to live out because we're committed to the process of bringing Jesus to bear in our community and where we live. And it doesn't happen through preachers. It happens through the church. That's where it happens. And finally, when people are open to it, share your story. You can share easily what you were like before you met Jesus. How did you meet Jesus? And what's the change since you met Jesus? It's a simple process. It doesn't have to be long. Several times I tell people, I say, you know, I used to swear like that too. Then I met Jesus and lost half my vocabulary. <laughs> See, now, it's a simple process, but in the midst of doing that, I've just said that's the way I was before. I met Jesus, and this is the way I am now. See, that it doesn't have to be a big, long theological thing. What it does is it says, I met Jesus. Do you want to meet him too? I can pray for you if you like. It doesn't have to be, I try to get people to understand my way of thinking or my understanding of the Christian faith. That's not the way it works. It's, it's up to Jesus to meet with them. It's up to me to introduce them to Jesus. Did you notice this morning, I said, here are my friends, Hans and Afo, will you please stand? I introduced them to you. Was that, was that a problem? That was easy, wasn't it? They had to speak for themselves. He did a good job, didn't he? <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking, all we have to do is introduce people to Jesus. Let him do the talking. Let him do the work. I mean, so often we take it upon ourselves for God to do something. That's not the way it works. As we introduce people to Jesus, we can say, come with me. I found something that's good, and I want you to experience it too. It's not a difficult job. And I want to challenge you this morning for that very reason. Prepare to share your story. Let us pray. Father, I want to thank you for this time here of looking at how Paul went about sharing his testimony, his life story. He shared it differently in Athens than he did in Jerusalem. Both were incredibly effective to point to the resurrected one. Both caused people to respond, some negatively, some positively, some wanting to learn more, others that wanted to not be challenged by it. And it's the same thing today when we share our testimony. Some people are excited, some people want to know more. Other people rejoice that they've met others that are family members in the church. But Lord, give us the strength the commitment, the willingness to share the story that we have with you. That we can share with others what you mean to us and how you have altered our thinking, our heart attitudes, and the way in which we live. And I pray, Father, that you would be with each one of us today as well as we go and eat together. Let our conversation be one that lifts you up and be a blessing to you as well as to each other.
in Jesus' name. Let me just ask you as we begin our final hymn here, are you willing to share your story? Do you want to share your story? Why don't you ask Jesus to give you an opportunity this week to share your story? Who would like to do that? Anybody want to do that? Anybody else? Yeah. Anybody else? Well, Lord, I pray that all of us would get to the place where we'd be willing to share our story with somebody. Open doors. Open doors. Let there be an opportunity that you give us to share our story. Just as I am without one plea.